the epicenter was literally downtown Los Angeles. Everybody lost power. They go out to the streets, and for the first time they look up, and what they saw stunned them. Matter of fact, 9-11 was swarmed. Um, 911 phone calls came in, and they, they were swarmed with people saying, what is that in the sky? They didn't even care about the first responders and people who were injured. They were consumed with what they saw when they looked up, because what they saw was a silver, grayish cloud called the Milky Way. It had been there the whole time, but those in Los Angeles had never seen it. The world was literally drowning it out every day. And as I think about that story, it kind of hits home this morning because when you think about this book, 66 small books made up of one book, written over 1,500 years by 40 authors on three continents in three languages, but yet in it, it contains the very mission of God. It contains why we exist, the meaning of our life. However, every day, the world is trying to drown this out. Our life is trying to drown it out. Our, 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 us being consumed with our stuff and our kids and all this is, is, is trying to drown it out. We miss the, the meaning of life. If you miss the mission of God, you miss how you are to live and how you are to give and how you are to raise your kids. If you miss the mission of God, you miss how you are to live, how you are to give, and how you are to raise your kids. And the mission of God actually begins in Genesis chapter 1. On page 1 of the Bible, you open it up, and there's the mission of God. Here's where it begins. It says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Fill the earth. God says, I want every corner of the globe filled with my glory. So humanity, fill the earth. Fill the earth. Genesis chapter 3, man sins. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says every thought of man is evil. Genesis 7 and 8, God floods the earth. One family comes off the ark in Genesis chapter 9, and it is a mirror command of this. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. So as I get to Genesis chapter 11, I'm asking the question, does the earth get filled? And I read, now the whole earth had one language and a common speech. Think about that. No matter where you were in the world, everybody spoke one language, English. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in China, and they settled there. They said, come, let us build for a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens. That we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered. How many Christ followers do I know who that bottom underlined is their life purpose? That we may make a name for ourselves and never leave our zip code and not be scattered. The Lord says, fill the earth, fill the earth, fill the earth. Humanity says, no thanks. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, we keep reading. God says, I'm going to come down. I'm going to confuse their language. I'm going to touch their tongues. I'm going to scatter them at the Tower of Babel. And he did that so they, they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. Genesis chapter 11 is a pivotal point in Scripture. In Genesis 11, we get all the languages we have right now on planet earth. Genesis 11 is where the languages come from. French, Mandarin, Spanish, rap. It all comes from right here in Genesis chapter 11. Today, there's 6,913 languages. So we've grown. Now, if you had no knowledge of the Bible and you opened it up and you got to Genesis chapter 11, you would have an internal struggle. You would have an uh-oh moment. You would say, how in the world is God going to respond to the Tower of Babel? What's his plan? 
And all you have to do to find the answer of God responding to the Tower of Babel Turn the page from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12. The answer is in Genesis 12. The Lord looks down among the scattering of the nations and picks one family, one man, Abram. We know him as Abraham. Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household. Leave everything you love, everything you've collected, everything you long for and you desire and go to a distant land that I will show you. What we realize is when we engage God's mission, it doesn't ruin our life, it actually brings life. He says, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. But here it is, Abraham, are you ready for this? The reason I'm calling you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and moving you west is because of this. All peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. What I did at the Tower of Babel I'm going to start with you in undoing it. The mission of God begins in Genesis chapter 12. I was a Christ follower for a decade before I realized the importance of Genesis 12. I had no idea the importance of Genesis 12 for the first 10 years of my spirituality. I call Genesis 12 the Abrahamic revolution because the domino tips with Abraham. And it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Joshua to David to the prophets to Jesus to the early church and to us. I find my mission in the mission of God that began in Genesis 12. The leading scholar of all of Christians in all of Europe, his name's John Stott. He died a few years ago. Before he died, he was asked this question. Stott, what's the most important passage in all the Bible? And John Stott the leading thinker of all the Christians in all of Europe said, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. All of God's purpose is encapsulated here. Think about that. Genesis 12. Genesis 1 through 11 is just the introduction of the Bible. The plot of the Bible starts in Genesis 12, and it runs all the way to Jude, in which you find after Jude, Revelation, the conclusion. So Abram, how does he respond? Verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord told him. He left as the Lord told him. Hey, Abraham, it's not just for you, but your son Isaac. Guess what? Genesis 26, Isaac, just like your father Abram, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and give them all these lands. And through you, here it is again, all nations, all nations on earth. What I began in Genesis 12 comes to you, Isaac. Guess what? It comes to your son, Jacob. Jacob, Genesis 20, 28. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and they will spread out. They will be numerous. They will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. Why? All peoples on earth. Here it is again. We're not even out of Genesis yet. And you see the mission of God coming forth. A friend of mine, he graduated from K-State University. His name's Andrew. And I was talking to Andrew. I was like, Andrew, tell me a story from college. He's like, man, you know what? In Manhattan, Kansas, we didn't have much, but we had our football. He said, some of my greatest memories were going to away football games. He said, I remember one day five of my friends texted me and said, be out front in 10. I packed a bag, went downstairs in the dorms, went out front. They wheeled around their SUV. I jumped in. We drove 10 hours from Manhattan, Kansas to Dallas, Texas. He said, when we got to Dallas, Texas, we pulled out all the luggage. And unbeknownst to me, my friends had, had bought eight cans of purple wall paint from Home Depot and said, men suit up. 
I was like, wait, you want us to paint our bodies purple? We could die of skin poisoning. But in that moment, we all knew it was worth it. He said, from head to toe, we painted our bodies purple. From head to toe. He said, Todd, do you know what word the six of us painted on our chest? Hey, Mom. Hi, ESPN. He said, no, the six of us painted one word on our chest. Family. I said, family? Why family? He said, because at K-State University, when you come in as a freshman, they say, you're not a student, you're a part of a family. The football stadium at K-State University is called Family Stadium. He said, Todd, third quarter with a minute left, something happened. I said, what? He said, we were down by 41. He said, I'm banging on the bleachers, I'm yelling at the refs. He says, and then I have this epiphany. He says, I realize I'm in desperate need of exercise, and, and our team's in desperate need of rest. However, there's a problem. I can't get in the game because I'm painted in purple with an F on my chest wearing a kilt. I said, Andrew, you have just succinctly summarized American Christianity. You have just succinctly summarized American Christianity. We're in the family, but we're not in the game. Oh, I'm a Christ follower. I came to Christ in youth. I don't celebrate Halloween. But when it comes to engaging God's mission to reach the nations... Sorry, Lord, I'm just busy. I've got debt, two kids in, in junior high, a business that's trying to make it. I just don't have the time or energy or heart or desire. I'm sure someone's going to care for the needs of the world. It's just not me. If somebody asks, I might give a little money, but I'm not going to give my life. I'm not going to raise my kids to that trajectory, and I'm not going to get that involved. And guess who thinks that way? Virtually every Christ follower you know. And yet what happens? The mission of God continues. Every, every story in the Old Testament is God regathering those who were scattered at, at Babel. I mean, every story in the Old Testament, you can see God's mission intent. The Ten Commandments. How is the Ten Commandments a missionary story? Well, listen to what God says through Moses. I have taught you these decrees and laws, Israel, as the Lord my God commanded me. Observe them carefully because the Hittites, Canaanites, Amalekites, and Jebusites are watching. And I want them to see you and your walk with me, and I want them to respond. Surely this nation is a wise and understanding nation. Why did God raise up Pharaoh, bring Israel out of Egypt into the promised land? Was it just for, was it just for Israel? No, I have raised you up for this very purpose, Pharaoh. Why? That I might show my power to the nations. For the rest of the Old Testament, God is known as the God who parted the Red Sea. What about wisdom? Why did God give Solomon wisdom beyond his years? Listen to this passage in 1 Kings. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world saw an audience with Solomon. He had the nation's attention as they come to him and say, Solomon, where did you get this wisdom? And we know from the book of Proverbs, he says, fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come up out of the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar decides to write a letter to, guess who? I just thought the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story was God saving three men from a furnace. I had no idea his intentions were to see what began at the Tower of Babel brought under his glory. Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter about God and sends it to peoples, nations, men of every language who live in all the world. I was at uh, Hobby Lobby recently, because that's where I shop. 
And uh, I'm meandering the aisles at Hobby Lobby, and I come across a picture. And when I saw the picture, <laughs> I was like, just. And my wife came over, and she's like, and I was like, I know. And she's like, is it for sale? And I'm like, let's pray about it. And, and it's for sale. And I was like, I've got to buy this picture. It was the coolest picture, okay? It had a stream, a tackle box, a deer, a fisherman, the sun rising, and in 98 font gold calligraphy, my favorite Old Testament passage. Found in Psalms, be still and know that I am God, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, I was like, I have to get this picture. It was amazing. And I, I noticed, I've seen that verse. It's my favorite Old Testament verse. I've seen it crocheted on tea towels and embroidered on bowling balls. I mean, that verse is everywhere. And I was like, wait a minute. For the first time I'd seen it in this 98 font, I'd never noticed the dot, dot, dot. Never noticed it. I thought it was be still and know that I'm God end of verse. I'd never noticed the dot, dot, dot. Now, my, my university degree is in elementary education. I'm a third grade teacher by trade, so I am highly aware of a dot, dot, dot. I know what you do with a dot, dot, dot. The dot, dot, dot means, hey, second half doesn't apply. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy. Focus on the first half. And as I'm staring at this picture frame in Hobby Lobby, I'm asking the question, how bad is the second half of Psalm 4610 that I've never seen it? I've never seen the second half anywhere. I'm like, what's it say? Be still and know that I am God. And Judas found a rope and hung himself. I mean, how bad is the second half that it is off the grid? So I pull out my Bible app on aisle nine, the picture frame, and I pull up Psalm 4610 because how bad is. <laughs> Here's the complete verse of Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's the whole verse. But as a white, wealthy Westerner who's consumed with myself and my own spirituality, I want the blessing of salvation, but I don't want the responsibility of having to take it to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So how can I have the blessing of salvation but deny the responsibility? If only there was a way to get rid of the second half of Psalm 46.10, that would be brilliant. Dot, dot, dot. Not my problem. Someone else will care. Someone else will give. Someone else will help. I'm different. I have kids, they're in traveling sports, I have debt, I have a business, I have a car payment, I don't even have the gift of evangelism, I'm not even called, and I don't even care. Like, I don't even have a heart for the world. So, like, why are you even asking? I think there's three people in our church that do that. I mean, can't they handle it? I'm different. I'm gifted, and I'm talented, and that's not for me. And guess who thinks that way? Pretty much every believer we know. We all do that. But yet, when you see it, you can't unsee it. When you look up and see it, you can't unsee it. Look at these passages. 
Isaiah 49, 6 is too small a thing for you to be my servant or restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that you might bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jeremiah 16, 19, O Lord, my strength, my fortress, my refuge in time of distress. To you the nations will come. What we began in Genesis 11, we're gonna regather them from the ends of the earth and say our fathers possessed nothing but false gods, worthless idols, did them no good. Zephaniah 2, 11, the Lord will be awesome with them when he destroys the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in their own land. Malachi 1:11. my name, are you kidding me? But the world blinds it out. Our stuff, our schedules, our busyness, our self-justification. Sorry, Lord. And yet, if you miss the mission of God, you miss the meaning of your life. You miss how to live, how to give, and how to raise your kids. I got asked to speak at the largest Christian university in all of Canada. I was so excited. 5,000 students. Did I tell you it's the largest Christian university? Did I tell you it's 5,000 students? And I was asked to speak at their chapel on Tuesday morning. I was asked to speak for Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, and Thursday morning. And then Beth Moore was closing on Friday morning. I was like, this just couldn't get better. So I fly to Canada. I fly a day early, even though it's in the same time zone. I just want to get acclimated. I land, and I, and I, I, I go to the campus. I, the next morning, Tuesday morning, I wake up. I iron my shirt. I don't eat too much. I don't eat too little. I want to eat perfect. I go meet with the campus minister. I sit down with the campus minister, and he's like, what do you think? I was like, this place is amazing. He's like, we are the largest Christian. I was like, I know. You're the largest Christian. You know, I go, about how many students do you have? He said, well, we capped at 5,000. I was like, that's incredible. I said, you know what, where does chapel even meet at? He's like, well, the only, the only place that holds all 5,000, we meet in the gym. I was like, oh, my goodness. I was like, listen, numbers do not matter, but today they do. I said, about how many students will be there? He said, oh, did, you not, did I not send it in the email? Missions week is the only week we make chapel optional, so we're praying that 200 come. I got up and I spoke to 185 Canadian students and I invited them after they graduate to give five years of their life to the Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Chinese, and tribal world. After I finish my 35-minute talk, I go off stage. There's eight Canadians lined up waiting to talk to me. The first Canadian student comes up to me. Man, that was a great message. I can't go overseas. I have debt. The second one, man, thank you for the powerful message. I can't go overseas. I'm engaged to be married. The third one, man, thank you for that message. It was challenging. I can't go overseas. My parents would freak. The next one, man, thank you for the message. I can't go overseas, though. I just don't feel called. The next one, man, thank you for your message. I'm just getting a master's. The next one, oh, thank you for your message. I just can't go overseas. I just signed a two-year iPhone contract, one after another. I then leave Canada on Friday, and I fly to Salt Lake City, Utah, where I'm scheduled to speak at a church. I land at the airport, I grab my rental, I type in Google Maps, it says turn right on Temple Street. I'm like, to where does Temple Street lead? And I realized First in Temple is the largest Mormon temple in the world. And I was like, I want to go. I want to go get a selfie in front of the largest Mormon temple in the world. How cool would that be? So I go to First and Temple, park the car, get out, take a selfie. And I look over, and right next to the largest Mormon temple in the world is a three-story glass building. And etched in glass, it says, Mormon Welcome Center. I 
I want to go. I want to be welcomed by Mormons in Utah. I mean, how beautiful is that? Maybe an angel gets its wings. Who knows what happens if that happens? So I walk over to the Mormon Welcome Center. I open the door and I say, good morning. Top of the Mormon to you. 20 of the most well-dressed, nicest looking university students come towards me. One girl named Rachel, she peels off and begins to talk to me. And I'm like, Rachel, how do you even wind up here? She said, oh, oh, um, every Mormon, after they graduate, they have to give two years of their life to taking the gospel somewhere. And when the letter came, it tells you where you're stationed. I said, you guys are sending a letter? She's like, yeah, every missionary is sent a letter from the church, and you open it in front of your entire family so that they can celebrate. I said, what's the letter say? She reaches down in her purse, and she says, here's the letter. I always carry it with me. It's the most important thing I own. I held the letter. I read the letter. I then leave the Mormon Welcome Center. I drive 45 minutes south to Provo, Utah. Provo, Utah is where the Brigham Young University is. Brigham Young University is the largest Mormon university in the world. I was scheduled to speak at a meeting there with some Christ followers who were wanting to start a ministry on campus. And I get about a mile off of campus. I'm a mile off of Brigham Young University. And I look up and I see this building. And what caught my attention was the sign on the store. I saw the store and I saw, the, I'm going to stop while I look over. I'm like, oh my goodness. The sign said on the store, the missionary mall. I want to go to the missionary mall. What could you possibly buy at a place called the Missionary Mall? I walk in the Missionary Mall and I realize the Missionary Mall is the spot where you go with your children who are getting ready to go on their mission trip and you buy them everything they need for their Mormon mission trip at the Missionary Mall. Everything your kid needs for his mission trip to North Africa you get at the Missionary Mall. His suit, his tie, his bike helmet, it all comes from the Missionary Mall. And as I'm in the missionary mall, all I'm doing is looking at the faces of the fathers and the mothers. All I'm doing is looking at the faces of the fathers and the mothers. And on their faces is sheer joy, excitement. I couldn't be prouder. I went back to the car, opened up my journal, and I wrote, Mormons give two years, Christians give excuses. Mormons give two years, Christians give excuses. Here's the newest stat out that we have found in our research. The newest stat out is this. Our research over seven years of researching has indicated 99% of every Christian family, if the son or daughter somehow gets a heart to reach the world, their parents are the first to talk them out of it. 99% of all Christian parents, when their son or daughter comes to them and says, hey, I think God has me to be a cross-cultural missionary, will spend, 99% of all Christian families will spend the next six months trying to talk their, their child out of it. Are you sure? Why? Have you seen the needs here? Is this even good timing? You would think if God would call you, he would tell your parents first. And your dad and I, we have no, we have never heard this from you. We haven't heard, we definitely haven't heard from God. Do you have a clear call to go? Let me hear the clear call that you have. 
You, what are you going to do about your debt? Do you think your dad and I are just going to pick up your debt? You know you're going to die single. You're never going to get married. As soon as you get on that plane, you're saying you're going to be single for life. Do you have any doubt? Is there any doubt? I feel like if you have any doubt, you should stay here, live with us, and work at Starbucks. Do you have any doubt? Are you sure? Did you tell your brother about this? You better not tell him. If I hear that you're influencing, your dad is, you do not tell your dad the way you told me. He is going to freak. Are you sure? Can we go back to the doubt? Are you depressed? Is there something in your life? Are you sure? Who's putting you up to this? How did you even find out about this? Don't you think you'd be better gifted here? You got this degree. Why would you even go there? I don't even understand. Can we, do, you, do you need to go to counseling? with? I'll go. I'll go with you. Do you want to meet with the pastor? I think you'd be so, you are so gifted here. Are you sure? You don't even wear Toms. I tried to get you a pair of Toms for Christmas. You don't, you're not in, you've never even been on a mission trip. You don't even own a passport. Like, do you even know how to apply for a passport? You don't even have a passport picture. You don't even know where to get a passport picture. Why are you even wanting, you know how it takes you like a year to get a passport? Are you sure? You're going to miss everything in life. Why do you want to do this? What's, you're going to sell your car. We're going to sell it. I'm going to sell it. Your brother's going to get it. And guess who does that? Everyone you know. Because for some reason, we feel like God's given us our kids to stay within our own circle, stay in our own safety circle. When you transition to the New Testament, Jesus continues with the Abrahamic revolution. Genesis chapter 12. He gives us five commissionings. Why five commissionings? I don't know. Maybe because he knows we spiral downward in self-absorption. I used to think there was only one great commission. I thought it was given in Matthew 28, and I thought there was only one. I had no idea there were five great commissions. The first great commission text is actually found in Matthew 28. It's the most popular one. It gets all the street credit. Matthew 28 says this, Then Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What I began in Genesis 12, I'm going to bring to conclusion using my church. So church, be a part of making disciples, and the scope is this, to all nations. This is the first great commission text. It's not the only great commission text. There's five. The second great commission text, is found in Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. This is the second Great Commission text. It's not the only Great Commission text. There's five. The third Great Commission text, Luke 24, Jesus begins by saying, Genesis 12. This is written. Do you not remember Genesis 12, the Abrahamic revolution? This is what I've been about. This is written, Christ, he says, that's who I am, will suffer and rise from the dead. He says, that's what I did. He says, repentance, that's how you should respond. And forgiveness of sins, that's the benefit of responding appropriately, will be preached. Here's the scope to all nations, Genesis 12, that's what I'm about. This is the third Great Commission text. It's not the only Great Commission text, there's five. The fourth one is John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Think about this for a second. Jesus, risen from the dead, he goes into the upper room. There's 11 disciples there. And Jesus tells the disciples, everything you've seen for the last three years was not my idea. 
Jesus says, I was in Trinity, community, eternity when the Father invited me to put on humanity. And the Father sent me to a foreign place, a culture not my own. Now, disciples, as the Father sent me and I responded in obedience, now I am sending you. And again, as a white, wealthy Westerner, I heart John 20, 21a. I unheart John 20, 21b. How can I be a John 20, 21a Christian? If only there was a way to get rid of the second half of John 20, 21 to make my spiritual life revolve around. Oh, if there was a way to just get rid of John 20, 21, B. Dot, dot, dot. Not my problem. Sorry, Lord. Kind of busy here. Got a lot going on. Padding my resume, watching my savings grow, loving life. My life revolves around my kids' sports. It's perfect. This is not the only Great Commission text. There's five. The fifth one is found in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Why is there five? Why five? Why not one? There's five. And I think because Jesus knows we read the Bible and miss the mission of God. The world's drowning it out. We, just, we don't have time and energy and we justify our inactivity. We don't realize how it changes the way we live and the way we give and how we raise our kids. I think Paul the Apostle, after he heard these commissionings from the other disciples of what Jesus said, I think that's why he writes in Romans 15 this, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Man, this is completely different than my perspective. My perspective is where's the easier places with a Starbucks and I'll volunteer to go there. Paul's like, where is no one going and I'll go there? I have a friend. I have a friend, his name is Brooks Buser. Brooks Buser spent 11 years in the Yambi Yambi people group. The Yambi Yambi people group is north of Australia in a country called Papua New Guinea. And as Brooks was telling the story, what he said was that five years into his translation, he kept getting letters from a tribe 100 miles away called the Gatanambu. The Gatanambu kept sending letters to the Yambi Yambi because the Gatanambu knew the Yambi Yambi had missionaries. And the Gatanambu kept writing letters to the Yambi Yambi saying, hey, when do we get our missionary? We want God talk. And Brooks is, the Yambi Yambis are bringing the letters to Brooks, who's the missionary in the Yambi Yambi. And Brooks is like, there is no missionary in the pipeline for the Gatanambu. Like, there's no one in America. There's no church sending people. There's no one raising support. There's no one, there's, they are years away from getting a missionary. But they kept getting the letters from the Gatanambu. So five years into his translation work, Brooks is like, I got to at least go survey the Gatanambu and see how many people there are so I can get word back to America. We got to get the missionaries of these people. So he decided to take the elder of the Yambi Yambi, who's a Christ follower. The elder had white hair, which is a sign of respect. 
They travel, the elder Christian of the Yambi Yambi and Brooks Buser travel 100 miles. I mean, this is a treacherous journey through the jungles of Papua New Guinea. They finally get to the Gatanambu peoples. And as they're approaching, there's drums. Boom, 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 boom. And the elder Yambi Yambi, who's a Christ follower, says, Brooks, do you know why they're beating the drums? And Brooks is like, I have no idea. He says, they're beating the drums because they think you are the missionary and they're celebrating you coming. And he's like, I'm not the missionary. I got to go back and finish my, there's no missionary coming. He says, Brooks says that he got into the village. They meet the elder. There was a huge language barrier. It had to go through two different translations, translators. And, and, and the, village, the, the village elder brings him into his hut and sets Brooks between his two wives. Brooks tells the story that, that when he sat down in between the two wives, they had no teeth and white hair. And there were villagers that came in. The house was filled and it was overflow. Like you couldn't get near the, the, the village was at the hut. And you have the Yambi Yambi Christian, you have Brooks, you have the two wives, and the elder of the Gatanambu stood up and said to Brooks in front of the village, how long until we get our missionary? And Brooks said, so long so long. And the elder looks at Brooks and says, how many moons until we get our missionary? And Brooks looks up and says, so many moons. So many moons. And the elder says, how many moons? Tell me the exact number. And the Yambi Yambi Christ follower that Brooks brought stands up and taps Brooke on the leg and says, I'll answer this. He stands up in front of the village and he says, when everyone in this village with white hair dies, then your missionary will come. For that's what happened with our village. Yet how many Christ followers do we know who not only do they not care about the mission of God, it's not impacting how they live and how they give and how they raise their kids. It doesn't impact that. When you look at Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, that's just the introduction of Scripture. Genesis 12, the plot begins with Abram. And you see it go all the way through the, the Old Testament into the New Testament. And the conclusion is in Revelation 5.9. Does God get it? What he began in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, will he regather at the throne of God under his glory? And they sang a song, you, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. It works from every tribe, language, people, and nation. What began in Genesis 12 is concluded at the throne of God. And the question is, are we on board? Are we on board? I'm not asking you 
to, to quit your job, sell your car, sell your house, and move to the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm asking you that, that this would affect the way you live and the way you give. Put a map up in your home. Pray for your kids to go to the nations. Ask your kids, hey, do you have an international friend that we can invite over? You have a campus near here. You have a couple of campuses, and the nations come to this area because of these campuses. You can reach the 1040 window without even leaving. This box is called the 1040 window. I used to think it was a tax form. It's 10 degrees up from the equator, 40 degrees up, and it stretches clear across Asia. In this box is 86% of those who will never meet a Christian. 86% of those who will live and die in this box will never meet a Christ follower. Every major world religion began in this box, 65 countries, and it should change the way we live and the way we give and the way we raise our kids. I tell my kids, this box is your privilege to be a part of. You have the privilege of joining God and reaching the last parts of the world, using your giftings, your prayers, your degrees, your resources. That's very difficult for me to pray. I, I, I have issues, but I know that's the best thing for them. My kids, we train our kids. When you see someone from another culture, run to them. Run to them. Meet them. Last week, let me tell you what happened last week. This is a week ago. Last week, we have a mosque in our community. And my wife said, hey, Todd, I'm going to text three of my girls who I'm discipling, and I'm going to try to give them world vision by going to the mosque and just observing. So my wife goes to the mosque to observe. They set up, the men are separated, the men are in the bottom, the women are up top. My wife just stood against the wall with these three girls and just observed. They met Muslims. It was just a great time. My wife texts me on her way out to the mosque. And she's like, man, Todd, I'm kind of bummed, to be honest, because there weren't that many women, and we didn't have that many good conversations. And she hit send. And then she gets to her car with these three other girls, and a Muslim woman, she said, with a 16-year-old boy with several palsy, and a 4-year-old boy, she's trying to get them both in the car. And my wife and these three girls are like, oh, let us help. And they run over, and they try to help her. They get him in the car, they shut the door, and my wife says, man, this is our first time at the mosque, I want you to meet these three girls. And the Muslim girl, with her head covered, said, oh, it's my first time too. I actually am not a Muslim, but I have no hope. I'm converting to Islam next week. I wanted to visit today. I mean, this stuff is happening around us. But what do we do instead? We don't even try to reach out to the nations. I mean, I'll give a little bit, but I'm not going to give my time, my talents, and my ability. When God says, man, I want you, I want to invite you in to reaching the world. So just the, my, let me just finish with this story. My, we have five kids, and my wife wanted a sixth. And I was like, why? And she was like, every basketball team needs a sub. And you know, that's a good point. You can't argue with that. And so we decided to go get our sixth kid, and we decided to adopt from China. So last August, we, you know, went over and got him. And before we got him, we decided to vacation, because, you know, when the Chinese boy comes into your home, chaos is there. So we thought, let's just go on one last hurrah, one last family vacation. And where do you go if you're a family who vacations? And where do you go if you're a homeschool family? A homeschool Christ-following family like ours, there's only one place you really want to go, and that's the Ark. They found it. It's in Kentucky. 
And um, they were way off, man. They were searching in Sinai, and the whole time it's in Cincinnati. Think about that. Both starts with a C. And so we told our kids, we're like, listen, let's go to the ark. They found it. Um, and our kids were like, how do they find it? We were told them it took months to dig it out. And just, we were going to compare, like, how cool is that to see, like, the actual ark? So we got to the ark, and um, I was way off. They had elevators. There's a coffee shop. We went to, there's a gift shop. My son's like, Dad, why do they have a gift shop on the ark if there's only eight people on the ark? And I'm like, these are questions that only God can answer. I do not know. When you get to heaven, you can ask Noah, did you make money from the gift shop? Like, who would visit? Okay, that's just stuff just only the Lord knows. And so um, we're at a hotel by the ark, and that morning when we wake up, I go downstairs to get a cup of coffee. And breakfast, my wife stays upstairs with the five kids. And if you know anybody who's adopted or if you have adopted, for like 15 months, you, all you talk about is adoption. So people who adopt, that's all they talk about. So the lady, the waitress downstairs at the hotel, she's pouring me coffee. And she asked me, why are we here? And I was like, well, we're leaving and going to China to adopt. And this is our last hurrah to see the ark. And she, she asked me a question that shocked me. She asked me a question that I couldn't even process. As she's refilling my coffee, she asked me a question that I didn't even know how to answer. She says, does he know you're coming for him? Does he know you're coming? I said, excuse me? She said, does he know you're coming for him? Ma'am, he has no idea. He has no idea that we've spent $34,000. He has no idea we've spent 15 months doing background checks, FBI checks, criminal records. He has no idea he has five siblings desperately ready to love him. He has no idea he has a college fund in his name. He has no idea that in 21 days, he's going to be stamped a new citizen of this magnificent country and be afforded every right and privilege this country has. He has no idea he has a father but I'm coming for him. I'm coming for him. And we talk about the second coming. Half the world's never heard of the first. But yet through the way we live and give and raise our kids, we can say, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. And so, Father, that's our prayer this morning. That's our prayer that we would understand and know your mission and that we would revolve our life around what that means. That it would change the way we live and the way we give and the way we raise our kids. Amen.